Alright, the text for our sermon comes from Psalm 51. It's in your bulletin on the screen or you can turn in your Bible. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of Your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare Your praise, for You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, You will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. there, if you're not there already, Psalm 51, Psalm 51. We'll begin with some prayer. Heavenly Father, there is much going, much stirring around in the world around us, God, but there is also much stirring in our hearts, God. We have much in our past that we don't want to think about, God, that we don't want, certainly don't want anybody to know about. But we come under you, the sovereign king, and we know that you know all and you have seen all. God, use this text, use your word to show us how we can deal with our guilt and our shame. So that as we still carry on in this flesh, God, that in the sins that lie not only in our past, but in our future, God, that we would know how to deal with them as well, God, until we are absent from flesh. Oh, that glorious day when we will see you face to face. But God, you have not appointed that time to come, so we come to you and we ask that you would use this time to help us see your Son and his beauty. Amen. 
Once upon a time, there was a man. And he was highly esteemed, and because of his work, he traveled quite a bit. And everywhere he went, because he was highly esteemed, they would throw a feast for him. And one time, one day he found himself in Judea, and he was coming down the Jordan River, past Jericho, up that road to the city on the hill, over the Mount of Olives, down the Kidron Valley, and then up into Jerusalem. Of course, being who he was, it was an occasion for a feast. And his host, he had his, his flocks out in the countryside, but he was going to send one of his servants out to go get it, but then he remembered, why go to my flocks when there's this poor family down the street? Just go outside of our palatial estate, outside of a villa, go right down the alleyway. There's that poor family down there. You can just take their lamb. Yeah, they love their one lamb and they nurture that lamb and they feed it as if it was one of their own children. But just go take that. There's nothing they can do. They have no recourse. So the servant did. The servant went down instead of to his master's flocks. He went to the house down the street, took their lamb, and they slaughtered it and enjoyed it and had a feast for this highly esteemed traveler that was coming through. King David heard this story and he was enraged at the injustice that was happening. How could such a thing happen in my kingdom? In my city, the city that God has appointed to be a light to the world. How could such a thing happen? Well, then his rage and righteous indignation soon turned to guilt and to shame. Because the story was told by the prophet Nathan. And Nathan told him, you are that man. See, it wasn't a story about a lamb. It was a story about another man's wife. David was... He's getting into his early mid-40s probably at this time. And he's growing comfortable in life. He's now the, the preeminent man, not only in his kingdom, but in the surrounding kingdoms as well. And so he's getting comfortable. You know, He's probably getting advice, well, we can't have you die. You stay here and back off in the safety. And so the man who used to live with the warriors and live in the tents with them is now staying back and not even going into battle in the spring of the year. And he he's there in his palace and he sees this lady on her rooftop. And it's not just any lady. It's the wife of one of his 30 valiant warriors. It's, it's one of his guys. It's one of his guys' wives. He knows her. They've seen each other before. And he goes and he has her sent to him. And in due course, she becomes pregnant. And David, he tries to cover it up. And so he sends her husband, Uriah, to have him come back from battle but Uriah is, I mean, he's a man of honor, unlike David, and he doesn't go to the comfort of his wife because he says, no, my fellow soldiers are out sleeping in tents. How can I go home to the comfort of my wife? And so he sleeps outside with the servants. Doesn't even go home. 
David hears about this and then he gets him drunk. He goes, now finally he'll go home to his wife. No, even in his drunken stupor, Uriah had enough wits about him to go, no, I'm not going to betray my men, my boys in the battlefield to go home to the comfort of my wife. So then David raises up the ante a little bit and he crafts this letter and he sends it in the hand of Uriah to the commander Joab. So Uriah is carrying the very message that is telling the commander to put him on the front line of the battle and then when it gets heavy and thick, pull back so that Uriah gets killed and everything will be just fine. And that's what happened. Lust, adultery, murder, What do you do with this sort of guilt? What do you do with the guilt in your own life? This is why Psalm 51 is so beautiful. This is David's response to being busted and called out by the prophet for his hypocrisy, for his sin, for falling short of the place that God had him. This is his response. And so what we're going to be really focusing in on, guys, is that Christ will cleanse. Christ will cleanse the hearts of His people. Christ will cleanse the heart of His people. So then we're going to look in verses 1-6. through We're going to be looking at the mercy of God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. We're going to be looking at this, this pleas for mercy that come out of David. And then secondly, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11, and we're going to be looking at restoration. Okay, we have these pleas for mercy coming out of David. How is there restoration? How does that happen? And then once there is this restoration, what's the response through the end of the chapter? That's what we're going to be looking at. So I hope you know your mind was probably flooded with your own guilt and nameless things that you have done as you hear this other man's story, which is the whole point. So we don't just look at David and go, what a, what a filthy man. We use this as an opportunity to go, yeah, that's a true story and it's about David, but that's true in me as well. So... In David's pleas for mercy, by God's grace, we will see our own pleas for mercy coming forth. And this restoration that happening between David and God, we, by God's grace, will see our own restoration. And then our, our own response, as we see it from David, how can we then apply that to our own lives? So, okay, let's go back to the text. Verses 1 through 6. This mercy of God. Have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only. Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, 
in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So David is caught, right? He's, he's caught big time. And it was bad, but I mean, to his credit, if you're going to give him any, if you're going to extend any to him, to his credit, there's no other Eastern king or Oriental king at that time who would have thought, and well, probably even now, who would have thought anything of it. David's called on it, and he actually, give him a little bit of credit, he does lament. He laments in this situation. And, and here's the, the cries of a heart, coming out of a heart who man, of this man who knows his own guilt. And look where he starts. Not with our own sin, but with the mercy of God, with His own steadfast love. Have mercy on God, me, God. It's just crying out, I know I deserve your judgment. God, just withhold your judgment. Even if it's not forever, God, just, God, withhold your judgment from me. And not because of my merit. Not because I'm a good guy who's done something bad. No, God, do it according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. So he starts in the very place that we should be starting, and that's with God, in His love, and in His mercy. In, in, our, in our sin, we're so, we're so depraved, I don't think we've realized this. Like, even in our prayers, you listen to some people pray, God, I. And then they go on and they talk about themselves, even though they're praying to God. It's the same thing even in our own guilt. We can't get past ourselves. We just think about us and us and us. Nothing about God and His standards or His mercy and His steadfast love. You see, David is orienting us to start with God. Not even with us, but start with God and His mercy and His steadfast love. And He wants to be washed. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is the heart of true repentance. See, the hypocrite, he just wants his, he just wants his clothes washed. He just, he just wants to look good. But here's David going, no God, wash, wash me. So Saul, for example, Saul, 1 Samuel 15, he doesn't kill King Agag like he was supposed to, and Samuel calls him out on it. He doesn't care. He just tells him, no, no, don't rebuke me in front of my, my soldiers. Don't let me lose face. That's false repentance. That's hypocrisy. That's someone who just wants clean clothes. They care nothing about their, the heart or the sin within them. They just want to look good to people around us. That's the husband who gets wrapped up in pornography and gets convicted on it and then immediately goes into damage control because he doesn't want his wife to find out. Or just want other people to find out. No. No. David doesn't care about that. He doesn't care about his clothes at all. He's saying, God, he's lying out prostrate before God and saying, God, wash me. Wash me, God. Naked to thee, I, I come to thee for dress. Helpless, I look to thee for grace. Foul to the fountain, I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Here is David coming 
Acknowledging God first, not himself. Wanting to be thoroughly washed and cleansed within. Not just to look good. Not just to look good at all. And, what, and we'll oftentimes just, just fear the consequences more so. We'll, we'll fear the punishment. We'll go into damage control. Right? It's Rather than lamenting our actual sin, we'll, we'll just try to get ahead of it to control the narrative or to, to tell people a little bit about it so if they do hear the full thing, they'll kind of be inoculated a little bit and then just go, well, it can't be that bad, but he did tell me about it. It's not a big deal. That's how we oftentimes lament. It's like our some of our, our children, maybe like some of yours, you, you'll go to punish them. You know, you go, don't you... Realize what you just did? Your, your sister is crying. Mom is holding your sister who is crying. First thing they say is, don't send me to my room. <laughs> don't spank me. That's, that's our initial response. That's our initial response as well. But here's David lamenting his sin. And not just fearing the consequences, but hating the sin that was within him. And asking God to purge it from him, to wash it, and to wash it clean. And here it comes to this this part of the lament here. Verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And in studying this passage throughout the week, this is the one where I really, really had to wrestle with. So, I mean, here's David takes advantage of a vulnerable lady. You know, who knows the emotions that are stirring in her heart. Her husband's, by his profession, gone all the time. She never knows if he's going to come back. She doesn't know if he's dead now. And this affection that she's been lacking all of these years, here some man comes and gives it to her. And it's not only some man, but he's the king. It's not only the king, he's ruggedly handsome. And she has all these twisting emotions, and David's taking advantage of that. And she becomes pregnant. And then the next thing she knows, her husband's dead. And in the stirring of all of these emotions, she has this child who she loves. It's her child, even though the circumstances are most unfortunate. But then this child passes away as well. And then David has the gall. He has the audacity to say, against you and you only have I sinned? What? And this is hard because we we like to think that We like to think that others have sinned against us, is what it is. And so for David to realize that, no, he has sinned against God, that the righteous standards are God's and God's alone, that we have to, again, invert it and realize when others sin against us, it's not really about us. We might get swept up in their sin, but they are sinning and they are sinning against God. So and to realize this, we have to humble ourselves and say, oh no, when others sin against us, I'm not God. They're sinning against God. They're not accountable to me. They're accountable to God. Husbands, wives, 
this sink in. Against you and you only have I sinned. And so, because of that, there's only one place that He can go for mercy. There's only one abundant, steadfast love that He can declare and proclaim. When we think that we have sinned against other people, or when other people think they have sinned against us, then they're dependent upon our grace and our mercy, which is zero. It's none. But when they've sinned against God, they can go to God because of His abundant mercy and His steadfast love. And they can go to God, not for us to wash them clean, but no, they can go to God, lie prostrate before Him and say, God, wash me clean. So this very thing that I was wrestling with, and I almost wanted to excuse away, kind of pass over it, I began to cherish it throughout the week as I was studying and thinking and praying about this more and more. So you want to be cleansed of your sin and your guilt, but then we, we go to God and we seek His steadfast mercy and His love. And now we know why we will do it because there will be restoration. So let's look at that here. Verses 7 through 14. Or 7 through 12. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. What do you do with your guilt? How do you deal with it? This is a, this is a really critical question. Societally, we're dealing with that quite a bit. And then individually as well. Alcoholism on the rise. Opioids on the rise. We as a culture, we as a people, we have no release. We have no way to deal with our guilt and with our, with our shame. If you're like me, you'd be tempted just to put it in the drawer, close the drawer, and assume that time will take care of it. Or if maybe nobody will find out. You know? Or you can get angry and defensive about it. And that's how you react to your guilt. Or you can just tell yourself, you know, you're a pretty good person. And you'll just do better next time. And so then you can wash it away and keep moving on. So how do you deal with your, with your guilt? It's like, uh, Lady Macbeth. She's sleepwalking and she has his, she sees the, the blood on her hands and nobody else can see it, but it's there in her hands and she can't wash it off. She can't get rid of it. That's this guilt and this blood that she has had shed so she can obtain prominence and position through her husband. And that's us. Others might not see it, but it keeps us up at night. And it's right there in our hands, and we, we cannot get rid of it. We can't scrub it off. We can't do anything about it. 
And even if you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're not a Christian, fantastic. We'd love that you're here. But you know you want this, this grace and this forgiveness, you want it extended to you. You love the idea about it. You, you know you need it. You, and you've compromised your conscience far too many times to think that you actually have gotten away with anything. You know you have it. And you see this in the culture around us as we are moving. I don't know if we ever really were a Christian culture, but we certainly are not now. And uh, this post-Christian culture is now becoming a post-grace and a post-forgiveness culture. So you say one thing that's out of the narrative, you're gone. You're done. You could be, you could be a, a, a liberal feminist. You don't say the right thing, you're out. You're done. We, we have no grace. We have no forgiveness. Because internally we have no means for dealing with our guilt. And I'm sure as heck not going to extend that to them over there. So how do you deal with this guilt? So we're helpless. Is there anyone to whom we can turn? You can continue to look within, sure, but it's like taking a filthy rag and trying to clean yourself up. You, you, have, you have nothing. It's like taking a dirty rag and trying to clean the counters. I've tried it. It doesn't work. You just clean the counters. And you look back and you go, ah, that's, that's pretty filthy. Well done. We need someone outside of us, not in ourselves. We need someone outside of us to come and to purge us and to clean us. The best that we can do is put it into a drawer. We can avoid it or we can get angry or we can have a show of sorrow and then hope everybody else forgets about it. That's the best that we can do. But we need someone outside of us to come and to clean us. We need to rejoice. That there is one, that there is Christ who can come, who can cleanse us, who can purge us, who can make us whiter than snow, who can blot out our sins and create in us a new heart, who will not cast us away, but who will draw us near, who will restore to us the joy of our salvation. This is Christ. The one in whom we, we point to and, and we rejoice. So as we're going through these psalms, I don't think I made this clear enough last time. As we're going through these psalms, you, you can find yourself in them. It's not as though we're excluded from them. As, as we were saying, it all points to Christ. True. It points to Christ. We can find ourselves in them, and as we find them, so ourselves in them, we properly are able to then to orient our lives to Christ. So in our guilt, as Adam was preaching on, as we see creation and rejoice in that, as we walk in rebellion, as the nations rage, and the people plot in vain, we're able to put ourselves in the Psalms, but don't think by doing that that it's about you. By placing ourselves in the Psalms, we are rehearsing this story via through David and his sorrow and his repentance. How do I orient my life to be fixated on Christ. So it's not as though we're not in it. We can be in it, but it's not about us like we love to make it. So there is one who has come and cleansed us and purged us. So there is one who has come and who has cleansed us. First John, 
chapter 1, verse 7, but if we walk in the light as He, Christ, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us. Cleanses us. It purges us from all sin. Well, how can that, how can that be? Well, the author of Hebrews, he writes, for if the blood of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of, of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer, if that, this old ritual system that they had in the Old Testament, if that could, um, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, well then how much more the blood of Christ through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, how much more then will He purify our consciences and the dead works for us to, to serve this living God. As Isaac Watts writes, no bleeding be, bird, no bleeding beast, no hyssop branch, no priest can wash away this stain from me. It's the blood of Christ and Christ alone that can purge us and, and redeem us and claim us. And it's the blood of Christ that can come and blot out all of our iniquities in Genesis 6. The same word in Genesis 6 that Moses writes out with, with the flood narrative that he's going to blot out all of the iniquity throughout the whole world. And he does it through the waters of judgment. It's this, this same one in Isaiah 43 when they're looking to the Redeemer of Israel, the Redeemer of God's people. This is the same word here. He says, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not re- remember your sins. Is it Colossians two? This is this is Christ, and and you you were dead in your trespasses and sin by the circumcision of your flesh. God made made you alive together with Him, having forgiven all of our trespasses and canceling out the record that is blotting it out that stood against us with. Legal demands, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. David is also crying out, create in me, God, a clean heart in verse 10. This is what not only David wanted, this is what the the people of God want. You see, this is in Ezekiel. For hundreds of years, the people of God were crying out for this. See this in Ezekiel 11 of, of, the, of this promise to come. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit, and I will put it within them. Not externally, like Saul, David's predecessor, had. Not externally, but I will put it within them. And I will remove the heart of stone and flesh and give it them a new heart of flesh. Create in me a clean heart of God. I, the prophets are saying, there is one who will come and who will give you this new heart of flesh. And Paul picks this up in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, behold, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And all of this is from God, he writes, through Christ. Through Christ. And I'm going to belabor this point so you see that all of this is fulfilled, is obtainable through Christ. So David is writing, cast me not away from your presence. That's what God has done with people who sin. 
You sin in the garden, cast out of the garden, you cast out of the presence of God. You sin in the promised land, same narrative. You're cast out of the promised, out of the promised land, and the Babylonians, or the Assyrians, 722, 587, 586, they come and carry you off. And you are cast off away from God and His presence. The same thing happened with Paul, with Saul. He was cast off and he was cast away and the kingdom was taken from him and given to David and to his children until Christ. So we are not cast off, but in Christ actually we are able to come and draw near. John 12, he says, Now is the judgment of the world. And, and this is right at the shift in John in chapter 12 where it goes from his, his mission to the world and, and teaching and traveling to really being focused in on the disciples. And he's telling them, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw my people to Myself says Christ. We will not be cast off, but we will be drawn to Christ. And all of these desires of David to have mercy on Him, to be cleansed, to be purged, to not be cast away, but to to have a new heart created within Him and have a new spirit within Him. These are your desires. In your guilt and in your shame, this is what you want. So then what do you do? What do you do with your guilt? Don't do that. What do you do with your guilt? There's only one thing. You come and you take it to the cross from the, from the God who has come. And when He comes, He will not only forgive you, but He will cleanse you. He will purge you. And even if you're not a believer, you want this to be true. Even if you don't believe that it's true, you want it to be true. You want someone else to be able to come and cleanse you and purge you and to clean you. So is there room for you at the cross? Absolutely. Dear God, is there room for me? Am I guilty? Yes. Do I deserve to be punished? Absolutely. But is there room for me through the love of Jesus Christ? Yes, there always will be. You will always be welcomed into the arms of God. You can come as you are. You don't have to clean yourself. Christ will do that. This is what the world cannot offer. The world can tell you to move past it, but it's only Christianity that can deal with it and cleanse it. That can open up all these drawers that you've hidden everything in. Open them up. Cleanse them. Bring them to the cross. And have them dealt with. So that your guilt can be put aside. So then how do we respond? Let's go back to the text here briefly. We'll go back to the text. Verses 13 through the end there in 19. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. 
a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Verse 18, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will your delight in right sacrifices. Then will you delight in right sacrifices. In burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, the bulls will be offered on your altar. So you see here briefly, our response is inward and external. It's, it's hypocrisy to have an external response without an inward changing of the heart. And it's, it's un, unimaginable to have an inward change without an outward expression. So inwardly, you see in verse 17, an inward, and the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. This is beautiful because you have full assurance that when you come to Him, when the Spirit comes and convicts you, you will never, you will never be turned away. When you come to Him, nobody else can tell you that. Christ and Christ alone can make this happen. You can go to God with a broken and contrite spirit and you will never be turned away from the open arms of God. And you can make all the outward sacrifices or all the outward pleas or posts or whatever you want to do to lament. But without an inward change, it's all for nothing. And you know it. And everybody else around you know it, knows it as well. That's internally. What about externally? Well, when, verse 14, when deliver me from I believe guiltiness, O oh God, O oh God of my salvation. When this happens, it's the natural progression that our tongues will begin to sing. They will sing aloud of your righteousness, that our, our lips will be opened and to sing His praise. That's the natural response of us coming to God with our guilt, being purged, is that we sing and respond in worship and adoration of Him. So as you go through this psalm, yes, come with your guilt. Be forgiven and be purged and be cleaned. But that's not the end. That's never been the end and it never will be the end. God did not forgive you just to have you happy and clean. No, God has forgiven you and redeemed you so that you will sing. And you will worship Him. So God has done all of this so that with our mouths, with our lives, with our hearts, and with our with, with all that we have, that we will proclaim His righteousness and His glory and His grace, so that the nations around us will know that there is one true and living God, my friends. So come to Him in your guilt and be purged and be clean. Yes, but be purged and clean so that you can sing of the glory and the mercy of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, there is often a an unwillingness to come to You in our guilt and in our shame. God, let us know that You will never turn us away. You will never despise us. You will never forsake us. But Your people can always come to You as we will throughout all eternity 
And we will never be turned away. We will never be despised, God. But you will redeem us for your glory, God. And do not let us be content with just being forgiven, God. Let us be purged by your Spirit so that we can sing of your glory. So that others around us, that our husbands, our wives, our children, our neighbors, our co-workers, so that everybody can see and behold your glory as you transform our hearts and take away our guilt. We pray this in your glorious Son's name. Amen.